You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Okay, this is uh, Lawrence H. White from the Economics Department at George Mason University and the Mercatus Center. Uh, and today I'll be talking to Scott Sumner about his new book, uh, The Money Illusion. How are you today, Scott? Very good, Larry. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So Scott, this uh, book uh, is written in a kind of engaging first-person style. You walk the reader through the evolution of your point of view, and especially about the Great Recession of 2008-2009, your debates against economists of other viewpoints. Why'd you write it that way instead of a more formal or impersonal way? Um, that's a good question. So uh, partly, I think it was because it was based on my blogging over the previous decade. And that was also done in a kind of informal style and, and seemed to be effective with some readers. Um, my previous book on the Great Depression had been a little more of an academic style, and it was maybe a little bit intimidating or less interesting for readers. Um, I also thought that, you know, um, People talk about when there's disagreement between intellectuals, it should be in principle resolvable if they're all looking at the same set of facts and using logic and so on. And so uh, the problem, of course, in macroeconomics is there's so many complex facts out there. So when macroeconomists disagree, they often have in the back of their minds a different set of facts about the world or perceptions about the world that inform their analysis. And I thought it would be useful to give uh, readers a sense of how I came to form these views. What were the things that I read early on or I saw happening in the economy when I was a grad student, a college student, and then over the decades? And what models did I find persuasive for understanding that information? So how did I get to have a view that was viewed as somewhat contrarian in 2008 during the Great Recession? When I first uh, started to read the book, because it's entitled The Money Illusion, which is the name of your blog, I thought it might just be a sort of stitched together set of blog posts, but you really try to lay the background to the controversies, whereas when you read a blog, you're jumping into the middle of it and a lot is taken for granted. So it seems like you did a uh, made a, an, a real effort to or to lay out the groundwork for people who are starting from uh, square zero. Right. I didn't think it would be persuasive if I just argued, you know, monetary policy should have been more expansive in 2009 because people would wonder, well, what makes you think that would have had any impact? So I really basically had two goals. One was to provide sort of a short course in the monetarist approach to monetary economics So they understood where I was coming from when I made these policy assertions. So the first half of the book is is more um, kind of a light theory, I guess you'd say, not not technical or mathematical theory, but a discussion of monetarist approach to monetary policy, the basic principles. And then the second half is sort of using those principles to analyze policy issues in the US, Europe, and elsewhere. So um, it's, it's really kind of two books in one, a short course on monetarist analysis and uh, a book on what happened during the Great Recession. And I see them fitting together because I don't think you can really understand my analysis of the Great Recession unless you have some background in the kind of work that, you know Milton Friedman and others did in terms of uh, monetary theory. Because you know the, the standard Keynesian model makes my claims look pretty implausible right? You know, interest rates were low at the time. So how could that have been a problem and so on? So that's why I devoted quite a bit of time at the beginning of the book to sort of lay out the, the monetarist way of looking at these issues, or at least one, one monetarist. That, that obviously, there's disagreements within that school as well. 
I was going to say you sometimes distinguish your viewpoint uh, by calling it market monetarism from right. Friedman style monetarism or from Lucas style rational expectations monetarism. Uh, okay. And of course, you distinguish it from Keynesian economics. But to, to give a kind of overview of what we're going to get into in more detail, can you briefly describe your path to market monetarism? Yeah, it's well, it's it's kind of a complex path because it it started with basic monetarism. I was very much influenced by uh, Milton Friedman and the other monetarists' work, um, and that's still an important part of my current views. Uh, and then over time, there were several components that were added to that. Um, the I think my views are more informed by rational expectations and efficient market theory that, than Friedman. I mean, he, he certainly incorporated some of that in his thinking, but um, that's what moved me towards the view that we should focus on market forecasts of the goal variables, like market forecasts of inflation or nominal GDP growth, rather than monetary aggregates as an indicator of um, the stance of policy. So that would be one area where I sort of broke with traditional um, monetarism. And Lars Christensen was the one that came up with the phrase market monetarism, in reference to these market forecasts rather than looking at M2. There's also perhaps a little bit of New Keynesian uh, in it as well. Um, you have um, Paul Krugman's paper on the distinction between temporary and permanent monetary injections, a 1998 paper on the liquidity trap. And um, so market monetarists like myself focus a lot on not just the current stance of monetary policy, but the expected future stance of policy. And um, where we differ from New Keynesians is we don't focus as much on interest rates as an indicator of, or an instrument of policy. But um, so I would say that the two major um, changes were to incorporate rational expectations and efficient markets and to really focus on this distinction between the current stance of policy and the expected future stance of policy. Okay, we'll, we'll get into that in more detail, um, but to sort of give a, a background of what uh, brought your policy uh, position to prominence, maybe you could say a little about what the policy implications are of market monetarism. In what concrete monetary policy does it lead you to propose? So the policy implications are that Federal Reserve policy should be set at a position where the market expects some sort of nominal aggregate to be basically on target. Well, to make this simple, if your target was 2% inflation, monetary policy should be set at a position where the market is forecasting 2% inflation or if the target is 4% nominal GDP growth, policy should be adjusted such that the market expects 4% nominal GDP growth. So the market forecast in a sense becomes the equivalent of what M2 is to the monetarists or um, maybe the interest rate is to a Keynesian economist. It's the variable that's sort of the indicator of the stance of monetary policy. And we don't, view either interest rates or the money supply as reliable indicators. Personally, I think the money supply is more reliable than interest rates, but it still has problems. So market forecasts are really a central role in my way of looking at the world. And what sort of radicalized me in 2008 was for the previous two decades, I'd been fairly content with Fed policy because it, seems like, it seemed like markets were forecasting relatively stable results going forward. And in late 2008, it looked to me like the markets were forecasting a dramatic undershoot of the Fed's implicit targets. And I, I didn't understand why the policy was set at a position where market forecasts were so weak for the economy. And so that, that's where I think market monetarism as a distinct idea, at least in my mind, arose. It was, it was clear to me at that point that um, my views were actually out of step with the profession, whereas prior to, even six months prior to that, I thought my views were pretty mainstream. In fact, ironically, I was working on a paper about how we really shouldn't expect 
economists in the future ever to be able to predict recessions because if we could predict it, we would prevent it. Like, you know, we should always be essentially forecasting the result for nominal variables that we want. And if the Fed saw that a recession was coming, it would adjust policy until it no longer expected a recession. So late 2008, it seemed like my hypothesis was not true any longer that <laughs> we, were, we were actually forecasting a result far worse than what the Fed wanted. And, and I really believe that's the first time in several decades where you could clearly say, okay, here's what the Fed wants, but here's what we realistically expect. And those are two very different numbers, right? Well, even the Fed's own forecasts were didn't match what it wanted. And so that was different from, you know, the 2001 recession where, you know, we were caught a little bit off guard. And by the time we got into a position in the fall of 2001, when we knew we were in a recession, the recession was already bottoming out and okay, a mistake was made, but it wasn't like a forecast mistake. From that point forward, the forecasts were for a pretty good recovery. And uh, 2008 was really different. The forecasts were much, much bleaker than what the Fed wanted. And uh, that's, that was a puzzle to me. A lot of people have forgotten, by the way, that uh, interest rates were not at zero in 2008, not until mid-December. So it wasn't a question of like the Fed being out of conventional ammunition. They were actually setting their policy rate. Uh, for instance, the rate was 2%. It was set at 2% after Lehman failed. That was an affirmative decision by the Fed that made no sense to me at the time. And uh, that, that kind of radicalized me. And uh, I think over the next few years, um, I became convinced that either through luck or a good model, I, I was right on that point. Like if you look at Ben Bernanke's memoir, he says that the Fed made a mistake in the meeting after Lehman, that they should have been more aggressive in cutting rates. Uh, so I think that I was looking at the market indicators. The Fed was looking backward at the high inflation of mid-2008, and that's why they didn't act at that time. So at least in that one episode, the market forecasts were giving better signals. Um, then the other point is the focus on nominal GDP rather than inflation. And again, in 2008, nominal GDP was giving a much better reading on the economy than inflation. Inflation actually picked up in the middle of the year because of high oil prices, which worried the Fed. Nominal GDP growth was slowing fairly substantially, even as inflation was picking up. And some people I talked to later that you know, converted to nominal GDP targeting said one reason was they thought that nominal GDP was a better indicator in 2008 than the inflation rate. That, that was one thing that motivated some increasing interest in nominal GDP targeting. There's one other school of thought uh, now that we're talking about the recession of the Great Recession uh, that we haven't mentioned, and that's the Austrian school. So in the first chapter of the book, you talk about cognitive illusions in economics, which I take it to be a polite way of saying uh, common mistakes in macroeconomics, <laughs> mm -hmm. especially in diagnosing the uh, Great Recession. Um, and you say that one common uh, understanding of the trajectory of the crisis is that it followed the bursting of a major real estate bubble that helped trigger a banking crisis and that led to a deep recession. So do you think that there was or was not in fact a real estate bubble uh, caused by overly expansive monetary policy? Um, no, I don't really believe the concept of bubbles is useful. Uh, I do believe the concept of overheating is useful. Um, so I don't think like the Austrians are necessarily wrong that overheating can cause a recession. Let me be clear about that point first. Second, I think there's a plausible case to be made that there were mistakes in sort of the regulatory arena that led perhaps to excess lending in some respects. We have things like deposit insurance, which creates moral hazard. There's been some criticism of the, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. There's, there's a lot of issues with political pressure to encourage more lending to lower income borrowers. It's reasonable to look at our regulatory apparatus and ask whether there were mistakes which caused excessive lending in, in certain areas. 
So that's one issue. And then the question becomes, well, let's suppose this happened, that there was excessive lending. What would be the remedy for that? And okay, that, that would, in my view, not be a, a recession, but it would be um, you know, a change in regulatory structure. If there's overheating because there was excess demand stimulus, and there may have been a little bit of overheating, my reading of the previous expansion was that it was not particularly uh, strong by historical standards. The nominal GDP growth was probably a little bit above trend in 04, 05, 06, um, coming out of the recession, but it wasn't an unusually fast growth in nominal GDP relative to other expansions. So. I don't think that, even if there were um, excessive demand stimulus in the mid 2000 decade, it would have only caused at most a mild recession like 2001, if, if that's what the problem was. Instead, what I see is, you know, an arguably modest overheating of nominal GDP growth followed by a very severe undershooting uh, you know, going from a 5% trend line to negative 3%. So that's an 8% drop below trend. And, um, you know, I, I think that that wasn't really the proper policy response to a mistake, even a mistake did occur. But just to emphasize, I don't think that the Austrian view is completely wrong that overheating can cause a recession. And I've made this point occasionally myself in my blog when people say, well, what would be so bad about overshooting a little inflation because we've had so much undershooting in, in some years during the 2010s? And I say, well, the thing I worry about with overshooting is not so much the inflation itself, but that that then creates a business cycle. You naturally then go back to the, you know, the Fed will want to do something about that excessively high inflation and the doing something will cause the recession. So we saw in the 60s and 70s, a number the of- The tightening of monetary policy will cause yeah. a recession. Unless you're going to just go up and up and up to higher and higher rates of inflation, which is, of course, a different set of problems. But if you actually intend to have any kind of inflation control in the long run, and clearly we do, then you know um, any kind of overshooting will create a recession. I use a ge geological analogy of you can have unstable ground either through mountain ranges rising above the plain or a Grand Canyon cutting below the plain, if you will. And the level ground, the plain, like Kansas, is like stable macroeconomics. And in this metaphor, the Austrians worry that if you go up to a mountain, you'll go down the other side. That's the recession. The Keynesians tend to worry about the shortfalls from normal. So they view of the canyons developing. And But my view is that any kind of like instability will create a business cycle. Overly strong policy or overly weak monetary policy will create a cyclical a process in real GDP over time. So I don't want to see either overstimulus or understimulus. And, you know, when I talked about the cognitive illusions, it was also referring to the, the sense people have the sort of metaphor of a wild party and sobering up afterwards. So what I like to say is, well, you know, uh, if you do a lot of excessive borrowing, the solution for that is not to take a long vacation, it's to work harder. You know, people get paid for work because it's unpleasant. So in a sense, the, the countries that adopted more monetary stimulus as a way of essentially cutting real wages in the short run, were actually taking the route out of, you know, having their people work harder to make up for the fact that they'd run up excessive debts. And if, in contrast, you have a contractionary monetary policy and high unemployment, you're suffering, but that's not really the right kind of suffering in response to the previous overspending. The right kind of stuff suffering is hard work to you know, pay off the debts you've incurred. So I think there's this sort of cognitive illusion like, well, we had this you know, orgy of borrowing and spending, so of course we're going to have to suffer from high unemployment like a hangover. And... Um, I don't think that's really the right way to think about the, the price you pay for excessive borrowing. It's more like you should be lowering your consumption, maybe having small, you know, better trade balance or something as your the price you pay for excessive borrowing, not, not working less. So there, some of that I think is not, not for economists maybe, but for 
reporters and you know just the public as a whole, that kind of metaphor makes sense. But on closer analysis, that party metaphor, if you will, there are some problems with it in my view. Uh, you write in the book uh, that a policy that prevented NGDP from falling in 2008 would most likely have also prevented real GDP from falling or at least greatly moderated the decline. Mm-hmm. So what, what policy would that have been? Right. So in 2008, it would have been a more expansionary monetary policy. Meaning and faster money things, growth. Well, here's where things get tricky. So um, it's not possible to conclusively spell out ahead of time exactly what that means in terms of any instrument like money supply growth or interest rate setting. And um, the reason for that is that as a recession develops, certain endogenous processes occur, which the Fed reacts to. So for instance, if we're looking at interest rates, it's easier to start with interest rates. You could say interest rates were set too high in 2008 relative to the natural interest rate, which was falling at the time because of the housing slump and everything. So they set rates too high. But as we went into recession, the Fed responded by cutting rates. So that makes it hard to explain to people how high, excessively high rates could have been the problem. And then when rates get cut close to zero, they endogenously respond with faster growth in the monetary base because there's much more demand for base money, reserves, and cash when interest rates are near zero. But early in the recession, monetary base growth slowed to zero in late 2007, early 2008. And interest rates, yeah, they were cut somewhat, but not as fast as the natural interest rate was falling. So in the early part of the recession, I think just ordinary monetary policy of more growth in the monetary base, faster cut in the interest rate target would have kept the economy stronger. Once that mistake had been made, you get to the the very end of 2008, now you have to take more unconventional or extraordinary measures. It's more difficult, obviously, for the Fed at that point. And things like forward guidance would have been helpful, committing to come back to the previous trend line, what's called level targeting. There's a lot of things that can be done, but the early mistakes were pretty much conventional monetary policy mistakes of not increasing the monetary base, and not cutting interest rates as fast as the natural rate was falling. I'm sure you've uh, faced this question before, but why would a more expansionary monetary policy in 2008 have boosted real GDP instead of just adding to inflation? Well, that that's my claim, and that, that really relies on the basic mainstream model of there being an interaction between nominal G- and real variables in the short run. So I'm relying on kind of the textbook aggregate supply demand model where the long run aggregate supply curve is vertical like in the classical model, but the short run aggregate supply curve is upward sloping. So in this model, in the short run, when you have more nominal spending, it does spill over to more real output as well in the short run, even though in the long run, I don't believe there is a trade-off between those variables. So in the long run, in my view, real output is determined by supply side factors, not by monetary policy. But I believe in the short run, faster nominal GDP growth would have, um, because wages are sticky in the short run in nominal terms, that would have uh, showed up in faster real GDP growth as well. So I'm rejecting the the extreme real business cycle model in in this analysis. I'm going more with the mainstream, both monetarists, by the way, and mainstream New Keynesians believe that there is this short run interaction between nominal shocks and real output. Due to sticky prices and wages. Sticky prices and wages. In my own view, the sticky wages are the more important uh, of the two, but yes. Um, You write in the book that... uh... A, a common account makes it seem as if the financial crisis uh, caused the depression and both in the Great Depression and the Great Recession, people mm-hmm. hold that view. But you think it's the other way around, that the recession made the financial crisis more severe. So yes, how, um, how does that timeline work in 1929, 1930, and how does it work in 2008? 
1929, um, I believe that it was almost all reverse causality. That is the, the depression causing the financial crisis because the financial crisis in the Great Depression didn't really begin until the depression was already pretty severe. You had a little bit of banking crisis in late 1930, but by then so, it was only a so very- So the stock market crash in 1929 was not a financial crisis? No, and not in my view. Um, and, and I think that's you know supported by the evidence, but I do talk about that. And I mentioned that in 1987, we had a stock market crash that was eerily similar to 29 in magnitude. Uh, and not only magnitude, but if you lay the graphs over each other, you know, they both started for about six weeks of gradual decline that was substantial, and then a severe decline of about 20% in one or two days. So there was quite strong similarity. The 87 crash was not even followed by a tiny slowdown in the economy. The economy boomed in 1988 and 1989. Now, sometimes people will say, well, yeah, but the Fed, you know, did this or that in 1987, so it was different. And my response is, that's exactly my point. So the Fed policy is what's really driving nominal spending, not, not stock market. But I understand that if people want to argue that the stock market crash caused the Great Depression, that's fine. But that's a very sort of ad hoc theory because it doesn't tell us anything about 1987. I mean, it just doesn't fit at all. It'd be one thing if we had a little recession after 87 crash, but we had nothing. We had just boom. So um, it's not a powerful theory of business cycles to talk about stock market crashes as an explanatory cause. Financial crises are different. And here, I, I think I said in the book that the analogy is not complete because there was some banking distress before the Great Recession. We did have some banking distress in 2007. Obviously, the severe banking crisis was in late 2008, and that, I believe, was endogenous. It was caused by the Great Recession. But what makes the two cases different is the problems in the banking system, which went back to the real estate sector, to some extent, were the factor that were driving the equilibrium or natural interest rate lower all throughout 2008. And as that process occurred, even 07 into 08, as that occurred, the Fed got behind the curve in the sense that it cut rates, but not as fast as the equilibrium rate was falling. So if someone wants to say, well, clearly the financial crisis in some sense caused the Great Recession. Yeah, I mean, I understand that if we hadn't had all those things happen in real estate and banking, we probably would not have had a great recession. But in my view, it was only the way that that financial crisis interacted with Fed policy mistakes through interest rate targeting. So if you target interest rates, you're very susceptible to making that kind of mistake. When there's a financial crisis, the equilibrium rate falls rapidly. You don't cut your policy rate as quickly you get a recession that to almost everyone looks like it was caused by the financial crisis. Whereas in fact, I believe it was caused by the Fed not easing monetary policy fast enough to meet that extra demand for money during that period. One uh, humorous way I've heard this point put is by the uh, commentator, Barry Ritholtz, who said that the failure of Lehman was like one of the first mobile homes to be destroyed by the hurricane. It wasn't the source of the hurricane. Right. And what, what you tend to have is that um, in any kind of financial crisis, whether it be America in 08, uh, Europe in Great Recession, Argentina in the late 90s, you have certain common threads, falling nominal GDP, debtors unable to repay nominal debts because nominal income is falling in their country. And of course, the Great Depression as well, all these cases. And one of the things you observe, which is not at all surprising, is that the first types of defaults and the worst areas for debt default are the areas that in retrospect had been the most reckless in borrowing. So at any given time in history, there'll be a distribution of borrowers, some safer, some riskier, right? And obviously, if nominal GDP falls sharply, you'd expect the first defaults to show up in the subprime loans, right? Or in Europe, it'll be the Greek debt, not the German debt that defaults. So the people that 
see debt as the cause of the problem, it does make sense to some extent because they're right that there were individual mistakes made and the Greek government borrowed too much or some subprime borrowers took out loans they shouldn't have. Or in Argentina, I'm sure you could point to specific loans in the late 90s that were foolish. But the falling nominal GDP is sort of the common thread that worsens the crisis. A lot of people don't know that uh, most of the bank failures, based on what I've read during the Great Recession in the US, were caused actually by defaults on loans to property developers, not mortgage defaults. I mean, there were a lot of mortgage defaults with the bonds, you know, mortgage-backed securities and so on, but a lot of the banks were holding on their books, the, the loans they made to property developers. And the majority of bank failures were those kind of uh, defaults. And again, that makes sense. If you have property developers that are you know, highly leveraged and taking risks, that's gonna be an, an area that could cause uh, a lot of bank defaults. You know, As you know, America has this system that's very decentralized based on the old unit banking laws. And we have um, deposit insurance, which pushes us you know, towards taking excessive risks in commercial bank lending. And so that's the kind of area that actually resulted in most of the bank failures based on what I've read. And yet in most people's mind, it was the subprime mortgages, right? It wasn't the commercial um, property, you know, the property developer loans. So when you think in terms of it being property developers, you begin to get a better understanding of how nominal GDP is like this hurricane that is sweeping all the weak areas of the economy before it, not just the subprime mortgages. So you talked about the, the Fed's failing to pursue a more expansionary monetary policy in the face of uh, falling nominal GDP. Mm -hmm. There's a common view that monetary policy can't do anymore once uh, nominal interest rates hit zero, uh, which they did around December of 2008. So why is that wrong? Uh, good question. So um, I view monetary policy from the monetarist perspective that the, the, the changes in the money supply are really the essence of what's going on. And interest rates are sort of an epiphenomenon. It's, it's something that is influenced by changes in monetary policy, but it's not the essence of the policy itself. However, the people that worry about the liquidity trap do have some reason to worry because if interest rates are zero, there is the, the danger that you inject new base money into the economy that is cash and bank reserves and people just sit on those and, and don't spend them. So there, there's a valid concern there. The way I look at that is um, the famous Ben Bernanke thought experiment that uh, you know if monetary policy were really effective, a central bank like the Bank of Japan could just essentially buy up all the assets in the world without creating inflation. And obviously, if you think about that thought experiment, long before they bought up all the assets in the world, the yen would plummet in value and you have lots of inflation in Japan. Now, the counter argument to that thought experiment is yes, but that's a very reckless thing that um, the Bank of Japan wouldn't want to do. And my counter to the counter argument is the proper way to think about that thought experiment is not that you actually want to go out and buy up all the assets in the world, but rather that you want to have a credible policy of returning to the previous trend line. You want to say, we will do whatever it takes. We'll buy as many assets as necessary to get nominal GDP back to that previous trend line. And maybe we can't do it right away, but over a period of years, we'll try to get nominal GDP back to that trend line. That then creates more bullish expectations for nominal GDP growth. And importantly, when people expect faster nominal GDP growth, they don't want to sit on a lot of zero interest base money. So if you ask, well, why do people in Japan, why are they so content to sit on so much cash and bank reserves with zero interest? It's because there's been no growth basically in nominal GDP in Japan for 25 years or whatever, or almost no growth. So um, when nominal growth is faster, people have better uses for this money than just zero interest cash and bank reserves. And it's the expectation that you're willing to do whatever it takes that causes people not to be willing to just sit on all this base money in a liquidity trap setting. 
but you have to be willing to do whatever it takes to make that commitment credible. And I believe there's a lot of evidence from the way that asset markets respond to news related to monetary policy, even at the zero bound, that convinces me that it's not powerless. Even things that were in retrospect much too weak, like the March 2009 announcement by the Fed of of the QE1 program, the dollar fell six cents that day against the euro. So that that's the that's the market saying immediately repricing the US nominal economy going forward. If not only did it fall, you know, in the spot market, but it falls in the forward market as well. So the market is saying, okay, we expect stronger nominal growth in the US going forward because of this relatively weak QE program that was not any sort of commitment to do whatever it takes. So obviously I could be wrong, but there's never been an example that I know of a central bank that really goes out in a whatever it takes approach and isn't able to. And if it, if it were true that it were literally impossible, then as I say, Bernanke's thought experiment about buying up the whole world would work. And that, that just seems impossible, right? I mean, too good to be true. Yeah. You used the, the term liquidity trap a couple of times. Pretend I'm not familiar with that term. Okay. What, what is a liquidity trap? Well, it's this idea that um, when nominal interest rates are zero, um, injections of new money into the economy by the central bank don't have any important effects on variables like interest rates, inflation, GDP. Instead, the, the public just hoards the money, sits on it, and doesn't spend it. Um, And as a result, um, it doesn't have a stimulative effect on the variables that the central bank wants to increase. Um, Now, there's also some issues with longer term bonds that um, the interest rate is often still positive. Uh, You know, Keynes argued that those rates realistically only go so low and there won't be much effect there either. And um, obviously, there's a lot that could be said about what the Fed can do in QE with longer term bonds. But I don't. I don't think longer term interest rates are really the right way to refute the Keynesian liquidity trap argument. The right way is really the thought experiment of what would happen if you did whatever it takes in terms of money injections and buying assets and and what that implies. So um, another way of putting this is um, like in Japan, the monetary base is over 100% of GDP, well over 100% GDP. And that's very abnormal historically. It would usually be less than 10% for a developed economy with uh, interest rates that are positive because people typically don't wanna hold a lot of zero interest base money as an asset. So if the Bank of Japan were to credibly commit to do whatever it takes to get inflation up to a high enough level where people don't want to just hoard cash, then you have to ask yourself, how much base money would the Japanese want to hold? And it would probably be less than 10% of GDP, not the over 100% we have today. So here's the great irony. When people ask me, well, how much money would the Bank of Japan have to print to really do what you think is necessary to create inflation, high inflation, let's say, I say less than zero. They'd have to reduce the monetary base from over 100% of GDP to less than 10% if the policy were credible. And then from that point forward, it would go up with inflation. So there's a lot of sort of Alice in Wonderland uh, you know, aspects uh, to this where things aren't as they seem. When you look at these monetary indicators like the money supply and interest rates, they're often not signaling Um, They're not telling you about policy in the way that you think they're telling you. It looks like low interest rates and a big monetary base are easy money. I argue that they're often a delayed response to a previous tight money policy. So do you think Japan has actually been in a liquidity trap? How common are liquidity traps? Can we actually observe them? Well... Here we get into language. So it's like the term bubble, which I also debate. What does the word actually mean? I think that they're in a liquidity trap in the in the just narrow sense that the interest rates are you know at zero and 
if they do some fairly modest um, actions like increase the monetary base by a modest amount, no, that won't have much effect. If by liquidity trap, you mean there's nothing the central bank can do to stimulate the economy and expansionary policy is not possible, then no, I don't think liquidity trap is a useful hypothesis. So it's somewhat a question of definition. Um, and I, I don't know if I'm, I'm clear on that point. Very analogous to bubbles, where if you define bubbles as a big up and down price, then they happen. If you define bubbles as prices that are obviously misaligned, even at the time it's obvious, then I don't find bubbles a useful hypothesis. So with liquidity trap, I think it's kind of a question of whether you define it as zero interest rates and a high demand for base money, or you define it as monetary policy ineffectiveness. At one point in the book, you say it's not clear why the Japanese don't circumvent their liquidity trap by devaluing the yen to create inflation. So yeah. that suggests that they are in a liquidity trap, but there's something they can do about it. Yeah, but I mean, you could also interpret that as why don't they get out of their so-called liquidity trap, that is what's regarded as a liquidity trap by okay. doing this. Um, and so for the most part, I, I tried not to veer too far away from the way people think of terms conventionally. So I, I'm perfectly happy if people want to define liquidity trap as zero rates and uh, you know, a high demand for base money. And then my response would be, I don't think a liquidity trap prevents an expansionary monetary policy, which was the point of that example you cite. And, and yeah, certainly they could peg the yen at a thousand to the dollar, which would be, a, you know, now it's a little over a hundred to the dollar. Well, that would certainly create hyperinflation in Japan. There's no question about that. And that really points to my whatever it takes. I mean, that would be a radical step by the Bank of Japan, but they could technically do that. And um, it would create a lot of inflation. So when you look closely at the people that worry about monetary policy ineffectiveness, the smartest people that worry about that issue, they're often careful to distinguish between monetary policy can do nothing and monetary policy as it's practiced by real world conservative central banks is largely ineffective. And that latter claim is actually what people like Paul Krugman were making on closer inspection. Again, sometimes he would be a little bit sloppy with his language and he'd say, well, there's nothing the Fed can do or the Bank of Japan can do. But in his more complete analysis of those issues, he would talk about the fact that, you know, if they really wanted to do something, they'd have to buy so many bonds that it, it would be considered too risky for the balance sheet of a central bank or, you know, that sort of argument rather than just there's literally nothing they could do in a technical sense. Well, you uh, propose a thought experiment in the book, which I found interesting, which is replace this uh, Japanese central bankers who, as you said, have this reputation for conservatism and therefore nobody believes them when they say we're going to create a lot of inflation with uh, the central bankers from Zimbabwe. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and, was, uh, and, and allow them to finance the Zimbabwe government by printing yen. <laughs> right. So, you know, uh, that was a little bit half joking, but I mean, it, it was getting at this notion. And this is something, by the way, that uh, to give Paul Krugman credit, he talked a lot about the, the fact that um, central bankers are sort of imprisoned by their conservative reputations. And he had the famous phrase of the promise to be irresponsible. Um, you know, but what, what they really need to do is just decide among themselves that they're actually committed to doing this. So here again, my take is a little bit different from many economists. Many economists believe that even if the central bank was committed to do the right thing, the markets wouldn't believe them. So they would fail for that reason. But in my view, if you look more closely, central banks usually fail because they, they really aren't committed to doing whatever it takes to achieve that goal. So um, when you see a central bank fail, like if, say, when the Bank of England was defeated by the currency speculators like George Soros back in 1991 or two, uh, it, it, it was because the speculators correctly saw that the, ultimately the Bank of England really cared about domestic macroeconomic conditions more than the exchange rate. 
right? So they, it wasn't that the speculators, they, that the central bank couldn't convince the speculators that they really wanted to maintain this exchange rate peg. They didn't really want to maintain the exchange rate peg. And when speculators are skeptical of whether the Bank of Japan will truly create 2% inflation, they're correct to be skeptical because the Bank of Japan is not willing to do whatever it takes. But if they did have a change of heart and were in fact willing to do whatever it takes, the speculators would believe them in my view. Central banks are pretty transparent. You know, it's, it's pretty clear what's going on in their mind, what they're, they're doing. And uh, it's not 100% clear, which is why markets react to speeches of Fed officials. But over time, you can kind of figure out how radical they're willing to be. When the new government came into Japan, the Abe administration in 2013, there was a, a legitimate change in attitude. The, the Bank of Japan got somewhat less conservative and nominal GDP did start increasing somewhat. Inflation did go from negative to slightly positive. They weren't willing to do enough to fully hit their targets, but very quickly the market saw the change. In fact, to give you an idea how quick this was, even before Abe was elected, a couple months before, he, he made a speech sort of committing to the, you know, raise inflation. And the yen fell very sharply in the foreign exchange markets on this speech. So Abe's government already had credibility to some extent with the markets before it even took power. And th that, that shows you that Markets do understand what's going on with these political changes, um, but over time, they also realized they weren't gonna do enough to uh, fully hit the 2% inflation target, just enough to get Japan on a somewhat better footing in terms of nominal variables like inflation and nominal GDP. So um, I don't think the problem is committing the, convincing the markets, it's convincing yourself as a central banker to do the right thing and importantly, to do whatever it takes to achieve your nominal target. If we can uh, switch back to uh, different schools of thought, mm -hmm. you give credit to Friedman and Lucas for much of your own worldview, but then you say each of them had a fatal flaw in their thinking, which allowed new Keynesians to dominate academia and policymaking. What were these fatal flaws? So for Friedman, I think it, his decision to focus on targeting the monetary aggregates um, as the proper target for monetary policy. And I think the broader profession never really bought into that. And I would say correctly so. I, I don't think that was the best target. I mean, it probably would have been a better target than what the Fed actually did during much of history, including obviously the 1930s. But um, by the 70s and 80s, the profession was moving away from that idea, even as they accepted a lot of other important ideas from Friedman. So I, I've recently been working on a paper on Friedman, how his ideas on the importance of real interest rates and uh, the natural rate hypothesis and other ideas got incorporated into the New Keynesian model. Uh, but yeah, the interest rate targeting. Uh, so my view of the new Keynesian model is it includes quite a bit of monetarism. And by the way, uh, Brad DeLong and others have made this point as well, that there's a lot of monetarism in the new Keynesian model. But of course, the key uh, policy idea, which is interest rate targeting using some kind of concept related to the Taylor rule, is, is not a, a monetarist idea. So that's where the monetarists kind of lost out. And um, I also have this sort of like cynical view that um, whatever the conventional wisdom is in macro gets labeled Keynesian because the most fashionable economists are always Keynesian, right? So like in politics, whatever is most fashionable is labeled liberal, even as the definition of liberal changes over time, you know, throughout the ages. But anyway, so that was the problem there that, um, once they rejected his policy uh, advice, it got pushed by the wayside and all the good stuff got incorporated in New Keynesian. For Lucas, um, you know, I think his things on uh, the Lucas critique and the rational expectations is, is really central to my way of looking at things. But uh, 
Over time, he, he moved a little bit away from Friedman's view on the importance of monetary policy in the business cycle. And I think he became um, more of a real business cycle theorist. Yeah, he became somewhat more of a real business cycle. Maybe you'd say a moderate version of that category. I don't know exactly how to peg him, but. Um, well, he said that he, uh, the post war business cycles are real business cycles, ex, ex, although the Great Depression was not. And the Great Recession, he's willing to concede that tight money played a role. But other than yeah, that. Right. So I think he, in my view, he put. Um, too little weight on the possibility of the sticky wage price hypothesis being important. And, you know, his work was more based on monetary misperceptions, not, not so much on sticky wages and prices. Uh, I took a couple of classes from him at Chicago. He would, he would ask, well, what's making these prices being wages be sticky. And, and of course there are models where certain types of price stickiness do not create business cycles. Uh, it depends on the exact type and so on. But um, so for that reason, in my view, the, the whole sort of new classical real business cycle wing of the profession never really got a lot of traction in real world policymaking circles because it just seemed like to real world central bankers that their actions were having important effects on the business cycle. And so although there was a lot of, you know, important academic research in those areas um, and very elegant models that came out of that, the policy work was based more on new Keynesian models, which themselves did incorporate rational expectations, importantly, but not, but also incorporated sticky wages and prices, which is something Lucas was skeptical of. So, um, you know, I argued that there's sort of alternative universes where monetarism might have been a left of center ideology where they didn't focus on you know, targeting um, M2 growth at a steady number, but instead wanted to use discretionary changes in the money supply to stabilize the business cycle. And in fact, as you probably know, people like Irving Fisher, a quantity theorist, was viewed by conservative you know, Wall Street types as being a pretty left-wing or radical macroeconomist, right, back in the 20s and 30s. I mean, his ideas were, were seen as very... Um, kind of interventionist and um, not sound gold standard thinking, right? So um, there's nothing in my view that's inherently right wing about Friedman's macroeconomic views on the economy. And as you know, there are some Keynesians like Greg Mankiw, Feldstein, others that were, you know, somewhat right wing in their views on economics in general. You don't you can argue, you can be a Keynesian and favor tax cuts during a recession. So I think it's kind of weird how there's this ideological uh, overlay to the debates between the monetarist and uh, the Lucas school on one side versus the Keynesian on the other that don't really have much to do with left wing and right wing in any other area of politics or economics. It just sort of happened to come out that way. And uh, it's kind of interesting to think about why that is. The only thing that I think maybe would form a connection between Friedman, we explain why Friedman's views could be viewed as kind of right-wing is that the Friedman and Schwartz book on monetary history of the US can be seen as a critique of the view that capitalism is inherently unstable. So if you, if you see the book that way, it could be kind of viewed as a right-wing book. And in, in that sense, it does make some sense. And, and contrary-wise, Krugman at some point takes the position that you've taken that there's nothing inherently ex uh, government growing about Keynesian economics. You can do exactly. it through tax cuts to stimulate the economy. But in other places, he lauds Keynes as the person who shook up the economy out of its laissez-faire status quo and showed them that the market doesn't regulate itself, uh, doesn't correct itself macroeconomically. Yeah, he has a, um, a critique of Friedman uh, from 2007 in the New York Review of Books. Yeah, yeah. And I thought it was a little bit unfair. Um, Just after Friedman died. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's all I'll say. But on the, on the, the content of it, you know, he, he makes a, I think, as I recall, he makes a distinction between 
um, errors of omission and commission that's a little bit arbitrary in my view, but I understand how someone could see it that way. So as you know, Friedman argued that monetary policy was too tight and the Fed sort of reduced the money supply. So that seems like an error of a commission, you know, a, a specific mistake by the, the Fed. Uh, Krugman argues that what Friedman's really arguing is that there's an error of omission, that there was instability in the economy, the money multiplier fell because of the banking crises, and the Fed didn't increase, take a discretionary step of increasing the monetary base enough to maintain you know, growth in the monetary uh, base. Uh, sorry, growth in M2 and M1. And he also, I think, accuses Friedman of sort of subtly changing the message over the years from an original message that was um, a little bit more on the errors of omission side. And as Friedman became more of a spokesman for free market economics, that simplified the message to the Fed caused the Great Depression. So I think he was a little unfair because those are very nuanced interpretations and it's not at all clear that um, that the things he cites from Friedman were necessarily misleading. It's, it's sort of, you know, to me, distinctions between errors of omission and commission are very, very difficult to make in things like monetary policy. Because if you're doing something relative to one variable, another variable is endogenous. So, um, and, and Nick Rowe likes to make this point. There's, there's no such thing really as the Fed doing nothing. If it's doing nothing with a monetary base, it's doing something with M2. If it's doing nothing with M2, it's doing something with interest rates. If it's doing nothing with changing interest rates, well, the monetary base changes. And because of the ambiguity of language in this area of causality and areas of omission and commission, I think you really have to be careful with accusing people of you know, being misleading or what, whatnot in that area, because um, it, it's not at all clear how we should talk about these kind of mistakes. Uh, you write in the book that despite seeing these shortcomings in Friedman and Lucas, you didn't become a new Keynesian. And you attribute that to uh, new Keynesians too often following falling into the trap of reasoning from a price change. But what do you mean by reasoning from a price change in this context? Right. So I'll give you two examples. One is to observe the Fed cutting interest rates and assuming that they're easing monetary policy. Now, to be fair, the New Keynesian model doesn't specifically say that. That is, New Keynesians understand that if the natural interest rate is falling faster than the Fed is cutting rates, policy could be getting effectively tighter. But when I observe actual real-world New Keynesians talk about actual real-world situations, I think they often make the mistake of assuming, as in 2008, that the falling interest rates were an indicator of monetary easing. And therefore they don't blame the Fed for the recession because they don't see that monetary policy was effectively contractionary during that period. So that's one example. In other words, you're reasoning from price change if you're looking at a price like the interest rate, which is the price of credit, and inferring from that the stance of policy. It would be like analogous to looking at soaring oil prices and making a judgment about what was going to happen to oil consumption, right? Soaring oil prices might be due to less supply, in which case consumption goes down, or soaring oil prices might be due to more demand for oil, in which case consumption goes up. Another reasoning from a price change error is Phillips curve analysis, where you're looking at uh, you're making forecasts about inflation, or un, I'm sorry, making forecasts about inflation based on unemployment or vice versa. So um, as you know, basically inflation can rise either due to demand shocks or supply shocks. And uh, if there's a supply shock, that could be associated with falling output. And if there's a demand shock, uh, higher inflation could be associated with rising output. I see Keynesians as being, and Keynesians know this, but they're too quick to assume that inflation can be explained by this sort of um, real growth or slack in the economy measure or unemployment or some measure of 
whether the economy is overheating in real terms. So they see inflation as sort of being caused by uh, excessively strong growth. That is, they're implicitly focusing mostly on the demand side as an explanation for inflation. And in some cases, um, I think we've had policy mistakes by engaging in that kind of reasoning. Some people argue that in the late 2010s, we undershot our inflation target because Keynesian models were putting too much weight on Phillips curve models that said, well, unemployment's fallen to pretty low levels. So we can expect inflation to quickly get back to 2%. And actually we don't know what the natural rate of unemployment is, a point that Friedman made quite often, quite frequently. So the, the actual unemployment rate is not a reliable guide to whether we're gonna have an inflation problem or an excessively low inflation problem either. And that was one of the lessons of the, the 70s as I saw it. The, um, the, the changes in the unemployment rate are just not a good indicator because the natural rate of unemployment moves around and it's very hard to estimate output gaps or the natural rate of unemployment. So, um, you know, looking at changes in inflation and inferring that it's telling us something about demand conditions in the economy, I think is a very dangerous uh, assumption to make. So that would be another type of reasoning from price change. Well, I think we're uh, running up uh, against our time constraint, but let me ask you one last kind of sweeping question. Uh, what do you think are the future prospects for market monetarism? I think they're pretty good. Uh, I'll give you two examples. Um, one is that um, the Fed recently adopted something called average inflation targeting, actually flexible average inflation targeting. And I see that as one step towards nominal GDP level targeting. Um, I think St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard said something kind of similar that it's sort of like moving somewhat towards nominal GDP targeting. Um, and as far as the market part of market monetarism, I believe that in the past, we would have had a recession in 2019, even before uh, COVID, if the Fed had been using the Phillips curve model as strongly as it was in previous decades. But by 2019, uh, the Fed and Chair Powell had become somewhat skeptical of predictions of that model and were relying somewhat more on market forecasts. So at the beginning of the year, the Fed did not anticipate cutting interest rates at all in 2019 because the unemployment rate had fallen to close to three and a half percent, which is viewed as very strong economy traditionally. So in past business cycles, there would have been no reason to cut interest rates at all in 2019 but they cut them three times. And it was an almost entirely, in my view, based on market forecasts that the economy was weakening. That would have normally, in my view, been a recession year. In fact, 2019 was 10 years into the expansion. That's the longest we've ever gone in history. And previous recessions were often caused by a situation where the economy was fairly strong but underlying conditions were weakening, the natural interest rate was falling, and the Fed didn't cut rates fast enough. In 2019, they cut rates three times, and by early 2020, the economy was still very strong. It got The markets sort of recovered. The stock market, which was very shaky during the trade war with China, recovered, and it looked like those rate cuts had staved off a recession. And I think, if not for COVID, it might already be apparent that the Fed's new way of focusing more on market indicators was successful. But of course, COVID was uh, you know, a tremendous real shock to the economy that nothing in monetary policy could really uh, do to prevent a recession during the shutdown. So I think it's very unfortunate we had that. And I'm hoping that we, we come out of COVID, the Fed can kind of uh, continue with some of these lessons uh, average inflation targeting, keeping inflation on average at 2% for whole decades is important for credibility and relying more on market forecasts. Um, 
that's also very important. And if they do those two things, I think the business cycle going forward in America will be more like in Australia, where recessions will become very, very infrequent and milder than they were during most of the 20th century. So it isn't necessary to have an outright adoption of nominal GDP level targets? I think that would be better. But if you do flexible inflation targeting, it can look a lot like nominal GDP targeting. Because first of all, uh, you're, you're doing the averaging like you have with level targeting. And also the flexible part of average inflation targeting allows you to kind of allow some variation in inflation due to supply shocks. So in other words, if the Fed wanted to secretly do nominal GDP targeting, but didn't want the embarrassment of abandoning their recent inflation target of 2012 of 2%, right? That'd be embarrassing to suddenly say, nope, we're not looking at inflation at all. One way to do that would be to say, well, we're going to do um, you know, flexible average inflation targeting of 2%, and then just go ahead and do nominal GDP targeting, level targeting, and the results would actually look pretty similar under those two policies. Now, I'm not saying they're actually doing something like that, although maybe I hope they are, but um, that's one way of answering your question, I guess. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap it up there. Thanks very much, Scott. And uh, I urge everyone to find all the food for thought that uh, is lurking in the book. Uh, It sort of builds a case from the ground up. Uh, It's easier than scrolling through 10 years of blog posts. So bring yourself up to speed. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.